Last week, we, dis, uh, we discussed that Jesus had not only suffered for us under Pontius Pilate at a particular moment in time, at a particular unfolding place of history, but that he also was crucified on the cross and that he was fully dead. And so the Apostles' Creed continues this, this uh, unfolding of the events of Christ's suffering and passion. It said, he was crucified, dead, and was buried. Then it says he descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. And the Nicene Creed adds the phrase, in accordance with the scriptures. And so this he descended into hell is a very difficult thing to talk about for, for us. We looked last week at how Christ had fully experienced the wrath of God on the cross in becoming for us um, our substitute sacrifice. That is, Christ totally encountered all of the wrath of God that was coming at you for your sins, many and grievous sins, against the holiness of God, and that Christ on the, in his work on the cross has totally removed those from those who would put their trust and faith in him and in his work. So with that in mind, as we begin to approach this topic, we don't, we don't, no one who maintains that Christ did descend into hell maintains that he went into hell to actually be uh, tormented by flames. So I, I want to just get that out of the way because that is usually what I find to be the most difficult thing for people to, uh, you know, that's, that's the most common objection is Christ didn't go down into hell and, and suffer uh, torment of hell. Um, and, and we're going to get into what, this all, what we all mean by this by this phrase or what different parts of the church mean by that. But right at the onset, we want to, I want to just boldly say that Christ encountered the wrath of God on the cross, not in hell. So with that established, we're going to look at a few things today. Um, we're going to look at this idea of the descent into hell. We're going to look at a phrase that um, identifies one opinion of what this means called the harrowing of hell. That is the actual uh, that Christ actually did go down to the place of the dead. We're going to look at how we need to approach this topic, especially with other Christians or Christians from uh, various branches of the faith. We need to approach this topic with humility and not um, be so dogmatic as to break fellowship with someone who maybe understands particular scriptures in a different way, yet is within the bounds of Orthodox Christian thinking. We're going to look at what this phrase means on the third day. There is some people who dispute what the Apostles' Creed says about Jesus rising on the third day. They take issue with it. And then we're going to look at his actual rising, that is, he rose again, the way that the Apostles' Creed says that language. It doesn't say he was risen, he rose from the dead. And then we're going to look at what that means for us, that and, and entails that we can live holy unto the Lord. So this is probably the most uh, deep and challenging theological material that I've ever attempted to cover in probably the least amount of time. So therefore, I want to fully state, no matter if I move too fast, uh, or, if I, or if you don't pick up on anything, my main point is this. After we get through all of the discussion about Christ descending into hell, is this, that the Christian the believer, the one who has put his or her faith in Jesus, makes progress in the Christian faith. That is, works out his or her progressive sanctification, uh, walking in holiness unto the Lord. That happens for you or me 
by coming to a greater knowledge and uh, uh, appreciation or understanding of the worth of Jesus, that is how he was the son of God, and therefore the importance and totality of his substitute sacrifice work on our behalf. And by that, you, you come to appreciate Christ in a greater way so that you are armed to uh, say no to the powers of darkness when enticing temptations and sin come knocking at your door. That is the main point of what I am uh, talking about today. That's the main point of why we read 1 Corinthians 15. So um, with that, let's get started. So he descended into hell. This is definitely the most controversial phrase in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, there are many people in the Protestant branches of the church who, after the reformers, have changed the reformers, uh, the, the opinion of the majority of the Re Reformation Church or the Reformed Church, to say that Christ did not actually descend into hell. And they, they do so uh, over and against what John Calvin and Martin Luther had taught. And they basically say that there's really no, uh, there's no explicit parts of the biblical text that give us an understanding that Jesus did descend into hell. And so why is it in the creed? Well, they, they say that it's in the creed because of error and that creeds are not authoritative, which I would agree, creeds are not ever to be put on the same authority as the clear, explicit biblical text. However, no one before 1800 had ever said that we need to move this out of the creed. That, that is, for, for 1800 years, the majority of Christian opinion had no concern with the phrase that Christ descended into hell. And the reason for that is, is probably because of a confusion of what we think hell is uh, versus the, the biblical, um, the, you know, the perspectives about heaven and hell haven't always been what they've been. Uh, we won't go into the entire development of medieval theology, but suffice it to say that um, that they take exception because they, they don't want to say that Christ went down to the place of fire and torment, the, you know, the lake of fire where, where, um, where people suffer. And so that's, uh, we would agree. So they, they basically say this on the grounds of Luke 23, 39 through 43. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other, the other criminal, the other thief on the cross, rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise." So the logic is basically this. Christ told the thief on the cross that today, later this Friday afternoon, you're going to be with me in paradise. And so we know that paradise is not hell. And therefore, Jesus couldn't have been with the, the thief in hell uh, because he said he would be in paradise. And um, that, that, same, that sounds really convincing. But on the other hand, if that is really convincing... Um, and, and if we only base our faith on particular passages of scripture, we can occasionally fall into deep error. And I want to show you how, if you believe that this was the final word uh, on what Jesus did after the cross, that is, he, he, he died was, uh, he, he died and then was taken down and buried. 
if, if you think this is the final word, then you have no way to reconcile other portions of scripture, which may be difficult uh, to do. So 2,000 years of church tradition should not be scoffed at so lightly. Um, I don't think, what I'm not advocating is holding up church tradition over and against what scripture says. But what I want to say is, it's, is it possible? I want to ask you the question, which you can answer over the next you know, 20 years as you think about this. Uh, is it possible that you have become so, uh, so enlightenment-minded, so, so rationalistic, that because we don't think about the afterlife or otherworldly things, that you think it impossible for Christ to go down to a place called hell, which in the old English really just meant a place of the dead. And so is it just possible that at a, at a casual reading of scripture, upon a few certain verses, which you may not understand, you might base your opinion about what Jesus did after uh, he was buried, what he was doing those three days, is it possible to you that you maybe have a worldview that predisposes you to interpret particular passages in a particular way? So that question you can answer on your own. Uh, I want to cover, just so you're aware of what the majority of the church has, has believed about what Jesus did after uh, he was buried. So the harrowing of hell is a very, um, it's a very old term for us. It's almost never said in church. Uh, but the term is, is used for the triumphant descent of Christ into hell, or Hades, that is the place of the dead, before, uh, between the time of his crucifixion and his resurrection, when he brought salvation to all of the just, but not the damned or the condemned, who had died since the beginning of the world. That is, uh, there, was, they were, there were souls of the departed, the departed faithful, who were awaiting the proclamation of the finished work of the cross. And in so doing, uh, Christ came down to liberate them. What no one means by the harrowing of hell is that Christ went down to suffer uh, the wrath or, of God being, being poured out on, on those who are condemned to hell. And so uh, another thing that we might uh, be helpful is, is Father William G. Most. He was a, a Catholic theologian who uh, explains the, the church's opinion of what the harrowing of hell was or is. He says, after his death, the soul of Jesus, still united to the divinity, descended into the realm of the dead, which the Apostles' Creed calls hell in the Old English usage. It does not mean at all the hell of the damned. So, um, the difficulty for us is that the word hell today is used to talk about the place of fire and brimstone. But in the development of, of Old Testament theology and New Testament theology, there were a, it is possible to understand those scriptures as speaking of two different places, which the parable of Lazarus uh, and the rich man highlight. That is, there is a place of torment and there is a place of bis blissful peace, which, uh, says, which some people call Abraham's bosom. And so, um, so in, in beginning to discuss this, we, we don't want to say that Jesus uh, suffered the wrath of, of flames in hell or, or torment by evil spirits. No one ever means that. And that's the most common objection by Protestants uh, concerning this doctrine. So, uh, he endured the wrath of God totally by his suffering through the cross. And therefore, we do not allow anyone to say that he paid for our sins um, in hell. So 
if you hold to the first opinion, that is Christ didn't descend to the dead, but that he went straight to a place called paradise, and you think that place called paradise is heaven, there is some difficulty with other verses in the scripture, which is why uh, at the end of this, I want to say that we, we need to be humble in our approach to people who have differing opinions on this issue. Matthew twelve forty, Jesus is saying what's going to happen after he he dies. Uh, he heals somebody and the Pharisees come and say to him, what sign do you perform that you can say you're authorized to do this? As if, you know, you need to show a sign after it's already done so that you have the authority to do it. He says, "For just this is the sign I'll perform for you. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So if the notion of this place in the heart of the earth, um, what, what does it mean? Jesus didn't say that he would be in the tomb for three days. He said that he would be in the heart of the earth, which that is an extremely different poetic picture than I'm going to be in a tomb, which Joseph of Arimathea is going to pre- prepare for me and let me use. Um, and so this begins to paint a picture for us that if you understand med- medieval theology, you have a separation, uh, which we're going to look at in Ephesians 4, of the different regions of created order. And so Jesus didn't just say that he would be in a tomb, and he didn't just say that he was going to just be waiting He said he was going to be in the heart of the earth for three days, three nights. So how then is Jesus both in the heart of the earth and in paradise with the thief on the cross? I just want to, I want to present that as a question, not to undermine the authority of the scripture, for I agree that the scripture cannot be broken, but I want to just open you up to the possibility that you may not be uh, fully understanding what might be at work here. So, Ephesians 4, 7 through 10, this is that idea of the different regions of creation that Paul brings out. He says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is Ephesians 4, where Paul has just laid out for three chapters, the magnificent unfolding redemptive plan of God in in choosing the Jews to be his special people and through them bringing about the work of the person and work of Jesus Christ um, and, and now there's now no separation between Jew and Gentile and all have made, uh, all have been made unified through the person of Jesus and that in the church, Jews and Gentiles live together in harmony and there's no division because of the observance of the law or non-observance of the law, but that they are now one people united for one common purpose. That is the, uh, the unfolding redemptive salvation plan of God on the earth. And so he then says that, that Christ has given gifts to the church, that is the apostles, prophets, shepherds, and teachers. And so all of that is the context of what this, of what this passage is in the midst of. He says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, that is, he ascended from the earth on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is him, him is, is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fulfill all things. We're going to get to this next week in covering the ascension of, of Jesus. But Jesus really, in 
you know, the, we won't go there totally, but Jesus really did leave the earth and went up. And while we know today that, you know, we've all seen pictures of the earth taken from satellites, we know that heaven is not just beyond the periphery in our of of the atmosphere that is the stratosphere and then heaven you know the, and there's there's saint peter we know that's not true in a naturalistic sense but at the same time we know we do believe that the scriptures are clear when it says that jesus ascended into the heavens and so where did he go uh, might it be that there are spiritual dimensions which intersect this, spiritual dimensions and realities which intersect this physical world which we are blind to or don't fully understand? Might that be the case? Uh, I'm, I'm submitting that to you. Um, so anyway, so if Christ didn't just go get the souls of the just, when, then when Christ ascended, who were the host of captives? It says he, he led captive a host of captives. If all of the Old Testament saints had died and gone to heaven, then who was he leading captive? Now, if you believe in the first position, that is Christ did not descend into hell to go get the souls of the justly departed, then you might say uh, that this was some sort of eternal event. And that would possibly be a way to interpret this verse. It could be that Jesus, you know, this eternal covenant unfolding that in some eternal way, Christ had ascended to the, to the right hand of the Father. But it doesn't really make a lot of sense when you think about the whole context of Ephesians 4, where Paul is saying it was hidden for a long time that Christ would come and that the Jews and the Gentiles would be made one. But now it's been unveiled. And then he says this verse. And so it's very clear that there's some sort of progressive of progressive unfolding. And that's the point of Ephesians 4. So, uh, so the question would be, um, if, if he did ascend, who were these captives that he led captive? Um, if, they, if they were already departed in, and into heaven, then why does the scripture say they're captives? Um, that's a question that you should think about. So you could say it was an eternal thing, but it doesn't really make sense concern, considering the fact and the point of Ephesians 4. And so this brings us to my earlier discussion of mystery and humility. There are some things which are difficult uh, to understand in the scriptures. And there are many people throughout church history who have d believed one or the other uh, opinions about this topic. So whether we... When we say the Apostles' Creed, we can recite it faithfully whether or not we say that Christ went down to death, that is, he went down to the place of the dead, or he went down to Hades, that is, hell, he, he went down to the dead, or we believe that he actually did go down and rescue the souls of the just who were waiting for the unfolding of his redemptive work. And so, whether you believe either position, you can faithfully recite the creed. And in your discussion with other believers, you should maintain an amicability that is respectful of the graciousness and patience of Christ. And what, whatever you believe, whatever outcome you come to over the years, which I'm assur assuring you, if you study, you will find it very hard to come down one side or the other. If you study this out for yourself, no matter what opinion you, you take, we, both you and I, if we differ, we can both agree that Christ put death to open shame through his resurrection, which we will shall now focus on. 
So there's some skeptics who say that Christ didn't really raise on the third day because they say, you know, he, Friday is just two days away from Sunday. And that's true. Friday is two days away from Sunday. And we believe that he, you know, he died and then was raised on the Lord's day. That is the day ap- after the Sabbath. But uh, there's, there's a really easy way to identify this misunderstanding that some skeptics have. And it follows from the way that the Hebrews uh, measured their time. They measured their time from sun down to sun up. And we measure our time from the middle of the night to the next middle of the night. Um, our counting and our measuring of time has significantly changed from Hebrew culture. Um, there wasn't such a thing as atomic clocks, which they can measure the radioactive decay of a certain mass of material and then measure precisely what now time it is. They didn't have that. And so they measured days from the sun setting to the next sun setting. And um, this is extremely clear when you study the Hebrew scriptures, um, starting in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, 3 through 5, it says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was go- saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And, here, and here's our key phrase. Here's our key passage. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. That's different from us. We think that, you know, the day really begins when the sun comes up. And so, so there's a difference. So according to Jewish custom, any event that happened on a part of a day actually took place on that full day, or you could talk about it as occurring on that day. And that's not really so foreign from us. We actually think the same, the same way. Think about it for me. We're going to do an experiment. You can think in your mind and, and I'll kind of paint a scenario for you. Let's say I'm remodeling my house. Um, I don't own a house. I, own a, I rent a house. And so I'm not going to remodel it. So this is purely hypothetical. This isn't me trying to say, come remodel my house. Let's, let's say that I decide I'm going to remodel my house and I want to pay you to come and help me. So on Monday, I come, I call you up and I, it's around noon and I decide I'm not feeling that well. I get a late start on the day. I ask you to come over and uh, it's Monday at 12. Let's Monday at noon, noon 30. And I say, come over to my house and we'll work. Tuesday, I say the same thing. Thir- uh, Wednesday, I say the same thing. But I do that at different parts of the day. At the end of those three days, on, on Monday, I say, Monday, you know, 12, let's get started. Then Tuesday, we start at 6 a.m. and work all day long. Wednesday, we start at 6 a.m. and we end at noon. We call it an early day. If you and I said, how many days should I pay you for? We might have a disagreement about the number of hours that I should pay you for if I'm paying you hourly. But if I said I was going to pay you for the day's wage, how many days would I have worked? Or would you have worked? Three days. But, but when we say that you've worked for three days, we're not saying that you've worked for 72 hours. And so all the skeptics can be completely ignored or disproven by just understanding that Jesus was dead on Friday, he was dead on Saturday, and he was dead on Sunday and then rose. He was dead for three days. So why is it important? You know, some of you are like sitting there and you're thinking, John, you're, you're, you're talking about one, two, three. Like, this is math. 
Like, what is, the, what is the importance? Well, the importance is that the fundamental things of the faith lead to deeper and deeper experiences of knowing Jesus. And I'm going to prove that to you with the scriptures. John 2, 18 through 22. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for us doing these things? This is another example where Jesus is asked by the Jews for a sign. And he, he basically does the sign of Jonah, but it's said in a different way here. Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years. Again, they're, they're arguing about time to build something. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And this is, this is, my, this is where my argument's built on verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, so after he was raised from the dead, then the disciples remembered that he had said this, and then they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They came to faith. The experience of remembering Jesus's prophecy that he was going to raise this temple, that is his body in three days, in three days he was going to take and raise this body back up, that unfolding experience and their remembering the faithful promises of God being fulfilled by Jesus produced faith. It says, and they believed, which means a moment before that they remembered, they didn't believe. And after they remembered that he had said this and it had come to pass, they believed. This event, this remembrance that the Holy Spirit brought about them, which Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come and bring into your mind and for remembrance, all the things that I've said, this remembrance produced faith and they were able to see it. So when you're reading the scriptures and you see, man, Isaiah's prophesying about the resurrection of the suffering servant or something like that. Or, or you know, you're, you're in the Old Testament and you're seeing these prophecies that, are, that have yet to be unfolded. When the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see the, the fulfillment of that in the person and work of Jesus, then that will produce in you greater and greater faith which is why we're covering these elemental things, which may seem like kindergarten Christianity. I assure you, they are more important than you may believe. So finally, he rose from the dead. So we've covered he descended into hell. We covered how it was really three days. And then finally, we're going to look at this phrase, he rose from the dead. It is true when we say in the Apostles' Creed that that he rose from the dead. We also believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Acts 2 Every other place in, in Paul's writings says that God did these things through Christ. So God raised Jesus from the dead. That is true. But God in his persons uh, never works, in, that is the person of God, the Father, never works alone as a sole agent. And so all of the different uh, ways in which we see the unfolding redemptive plan uh, that is the covenant promises of God becoming more and more clear and present and, and, and done and finished, the finished work of Jesus. As, as we see those happen, each member of the Trinity was involved in that, in that, uh, in that action in some way. Some ways, sometimes the scripture doesn't actually tell us how, other ways it does. And in the Apostles' Creed, we make the bold claim that Jesus, the God-man, he rose from the dead. We don't just say he was risen from the dead. We do believe that God the Father rose him, but we also believe that he rose on his own. And so the son's action of taking his life back up after he laid it down, that action was, was as Jesus says, 
the, the reason that proves or the evidence that proves that the father really does love the son. And uh, it also proves both, both that and it also proves that he did really overcome death. It wasn't just that Jesus died on the cross and then took all our wrath, all, all our pain, all our suffering. He didn't just experience that and then kind of w- get wiped out with death. Death and Jesus didn't just have kind of like a stalemate at the end and they both surrendered the game and then, you know, it was fine. Jesus totally triumph, triumphed over death and, uh, and all of the enemies of, of mankind that have come through Adam, which is why we re- read 1 Corinthians 15 today. And, and he says this in John 10, uh, he says in John 10, 11 through 18, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand, he's speaking about the, the false authorities of Israel. He's who, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. See, Jesus is building an argument here. There are these false shepherds. I'm the true shepherd. The true shepherd and the sheep know each other and the father knows him. In verse 15, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay my life down for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. This is a, this is a human being. Also God. But a human being is saying, I'm going to take my life up. That's amazing. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Christ totally defeated death and rose victoriously. And in doing that, in laying down his life, he proves he's the good shepherd. And in taking it back up, he proves that he has totally defeated death and the grave. And so this brings us to today's text. Uh, the, 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 the sheep that Jesus said, who are not of this fold, the ones who he still has to bring, those he is speaking, he's speaking about us, all of the, all of the disciples of Jesus who weren't yet living that he was going to bring into the onefold that is the people of God, the one true, holy, universal church. And so he says that he's going to do this and he's been faithful. And yet the ignorance of this, this is where we connect to today's teach, today's reading, the ignorance that this has actually happened is what Paul says leads us to lack living or uh, loose living and complacency towards our sin, our sinning. Not our individual sins or mistakes. I'm ta- what I'm talking about is habitual sin that is left unrepentant. That, that there's no longer any check in your heart about. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 19, For if the dead are not raised, 
Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Have you ever seen Star Trek? I'm not a Star Trek guy, but at one point in Star Trek, the, the Borg, is it the Borg? The Borg are coming after uh, the people of Star Trek. I don't even know. But they say, the Borg basically say this, this awesome phrase in our culture, resistance is futile. Okay, what Paul is saying is the Borg in that picture being sin. If Christ is not dead, your, your living is pointless. That's intense. I mean, he's basically saying that all your religious activity, all your faith that you think you have, if Christ is, is still dead in some tomb in Jerusalem, if he's still dead, the Christian faith is completely a lie and worthless. Okay? And we all believe that that's not true. We believe in the scriptures, having been illuminated by the Holy Spirit, having heard in, in, in our own experience of walking out our life, having heard the gospel and being quickened to new life, we know that Christ raised from the dead. And so Paul makes a connection here. If you know that Christ has been raised from the dead, then why do you keep going on sinning? He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That is, you haven't been cleansed. You're still defiled and still not acceptable to God if Christ hasn't been raised. Then those who are also, who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. So there's no hope for those who are dead. You, if you heard that Christ was dead, you could maybe attempt to create some sort of religious experience. But even if you could now get away with coming to God on your own terms, the ones who thought that Jesus was raised from the dead, all those guys are gone too. They're, they're, they've perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. Why? Because those out in the world live loose lives of ease and simplicity at times and wealth and exuberance and they have you know, f completely free sex outside of marriage without any concern or check in their spirit. They have, uh, you know, any sort of greed that they want, the fullness of their appetite. They can be, uh, you know, completely uh, abusive to people in their life. They can trample over the weak and they can live as if there is no God. Uh, but we don't live that way because of the work of the Holy Spirit and the teachings of the scriptures. We live in a way of walking out progressive holiness to the Lord. And so Paul says, if Christ is dead and then the Christian faith is, you know, worthless and to be pitied, and we should all just kind of go out and party if that's the case. So we believe that Christ has been raised and we also believe that this has some sort of connection for us. But Paul goes beyond all this. I mean, it's, pretty, it's a pretty bold thing for a, a minister of the gospel to say something like, if this didn't happen, then the Christian faith is worthless. That's a pretty bold thing to say. But he's even more bold, and he goes on saying, you who believe that Christ was raised, why do you live as if he hasn't been raised? He says in the last part of our reading today, 1 Corinthians 15, 32 through 34. This was kind of the point of last week. It really is the point of the Christian faith. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But do not be deceived. 
Bad company corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. Paul says that Christ died and was raised, therefore don't go on sinning. He says that those who do go on sinning are in a drunken stupor, that they've, <clears throat> to, to put it another way, more poetically, they have imbibed, imbibed or drunken from a doctrine of demons that tells them they can go on sinning even though Christ defeated sin and death and the grave. And they have no knowledge of what God has done, what he's really done. Not, not what they think he's done, but what he has really done in showing Christ as defeating sin and defeating the grave, that we have being identified with Christ through the waters of baptism, being united and raised with him, that we also can walk in newness of life with God. And so when we are saying this in the creed, we're saying basically that he, when, he, when we say he was risen on the, on the third day he rose from the dead, he is victorious over sin, sickness, hell, and the grave, and therefore we can live to righteousness, in righteousness to God. We can say in our most vile moments of temptation where sin is encroaching upon our doors, we can say, because I see Jesus and the glory that awaits those who faithfully have put their trust in him and in his work, because I can see of the immeasurable joy that awaits those for the the, the unfolding of the promised reward, because I see that as beautiful and holy and good, I can turn my eyes from the passing pleasures of this life. I can turn away from pornography. I can turn away from avarice and malice and, and envy and strife toward my brothers. I can be nice to my wife. I can be nice to my children. I can be nice to anybody in my life. I can suffer and go through it and wait patiently for the redemption that God will bring about for his elect because I see Jesus and the person and worth of his work. That is, that is, I see the glorious son dying on my behalf on the cross and not only dying, but also coming back up out of the grave and being resurrected to new life. And I know that he has somehow brought me into his fold and that one day, he will come again to bring about a victorious, righteous judgment for the faithful. And because of that, because you have the knowledge of that, you can turn away from habitual, complacent sinning. And Paul says, if you don't do that, you have no knowledge of what God has done for you. And so, so the reason why we're doing this series, the reason why we're retouching on on these seemingly fundamental things is because occasionally we miss implications. Paul says, if you go on sinning, you have no knowledge of what God has done for you through Jesus. But if you have knowledge of what he's done, that is, if the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to the things that are in the scriptures, you'll live in holiness to the Lord.